0: So, we took a little hiatus over Christmas and did some messages that were, you know, focused on both Christmas as well as our theme for our fasting and prayer season for the love of God. Um, and now we're going to head back into Nehemiah and finish off this book, Lord willing. So, we're going to be in Nehemiah 11 and 12. So, if you want to turn there now so that you're ready when we get to the text. You can turn to page 406 if you're using the Pew Bible. So Nehemiah 11 to 12. And go ahead, just look it over. Look at all those names that most of us can't pronounce. There's a lot of them, lots of names. Um, so if you're visiting or new or whatever, our Our pattern here at Bethel is to walk through books of the Bible by and large. That's the main diet of the preaching and teaching on a weekly basis because we want to let the text, we want God's word to set the agenda. And so we just submit ourselves to the text and study it section by section and allow God to shape us by his word, not just my hobby horses, um, you know like I can just pick and choose oh I think we'll do this and you know then you get out of balance because you're only focused on certain things so we're going to hit the stuff that seems like what is the point of this and how is this going to be helpful to us we're going to go through it because we believe 2nd Timothy 3:16 and 17 all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable all scripture is profitable Do we believe that? I mean, this kind of tests your faith, right? Like when Leviticus or Nehemiah 11 and 12 is your Bible reading section for the morning, that could test your belief that this is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is true. So oftentimes what we need to do is when we're tempted to just go, this seems pointless, let me just go somewhere else, we need to press in rather than avoid or ignore fact, little illustration of this. I was encouraged by this. When I asked Chris Elliott in early November if he would be willing to preach on January 2nd, which was last Sunday, he willingly agreed, and he got back to me at the end of November and said this. I'm quoting from an email from him. I'm considering preaching on Ezekiel 37 on January 2nd. I've also decided to spend this next year studying the whole book. If you were here last week, you heard Chris mention this. Um, It's always intimidated me I'm kind of intimidated by Ezekiel. Anybody else? Okay, thank you, Chris. I'm glad you're with me here. And I found, he wrote, that leaning into the verses and books that most intimidate me often lead to some of the most profound insights into God's love, character, and plan. So oftentimes there's gold in those hills. There's, There's diamond in that mine. You just need to take some time to dig. And so I've certainly experienced that, Chris has as well, and hopefully we will this morning as we dive into Nehemiah 11 and 12. So, um, and, and really that's why there's other avenues of study as well. Ladies' Bible study, men's Bible study, discipleship curriculum, and certainly all the ministry to kids as well. Um, we, through these means, don't want to merely give a fish but also teach to fish. Teach you how so that you are able to mine those riches on your own week by week as you feed on God's word. All right. So here we go. Nehemiah 11 and 12. It's been a few weeks and, you know, you might be with us here um, for the first time. So a little review, catch up, catch up on, on what brings us to this point. So The kingdom of God in the Old Testament centered in Jerusalem, right? His presence, his special presence after the people of God were brought out of Egypt, after they made it to the promised land, after a king is raised up, David, and then Solomon builds this temple, and God's presence dwells there among his people. Sadly, because of idolatry, because of, you know, having a divided heart, The kingdom ended up dividing as well. And so you had the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And because of the just continued stubbornness and sin of the people of God, first the northern kingdom fell. It was the judgment of God. They just kept sticking their fingers in their ears and rebelling against him. They wouldn't listen to him. And then finally the southern kingdom fell as well. And God used Babylon as a tool of judgment and in 586, Babylon came in and just completely burned Jerusalem to the ground. So this was like, this is God's, the place of God's special presence among his people. And here it's just lying in ruins. So you can imagine how, like, just throws the people of God off completely. Like, what is God up to? What, what hope is there for God's kingdom to come in this world? Well, God also said that one day he would bring his people back and so eventually the Persians beat up the Babylonians. They were in charge and Cyrus made a decree that the people could go back and so Zerubbabel and Jeshua and a bunch of people came back to Jerusalem and started to rebuild things. They started with the altar and then the temple and it was rebuilt which was great but kind of like a shadow of its former glory and even though the temple was rebuilt the people their heart really wasn't in in the right place and they constantly needed prodded Um, reformation rebuilding and reformation was beyond just a matter of bricks and mortar it was the people needed renewed and rebuilt from the inside out So Nehemiah hears that things are still in bad shape. He is the cupbearer for the Persian king at the time, Artaxerxes, and the wall is in ruins. And if you don't have a wall, you don't have a city. So he goes back and the first six chapters of Nehemiah are about the rebuilding effort of the wall. But again, the rebuilding effort is not just a matter of bricks and mortar. The people needed to be rebuilt. So there's a return to the word. And in chapters 8 to 10, people start to respond to God's word as it's recovered. They're confessing sin. They're they're making a covenant to keep the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, God's covenant with his people. And now it's time to build up the city. So even though the wall is done, it's kind of like a ghost town. In chapter 7, verse 4, If you remember back at that point, it says this, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. It was risky to live in the city. It wasn't as advantageous. People had already established their lives out in the villages and in the towns, and so to move in was to leave all of that, and things were pretty shaky. So who wants to do that? Who wants to sacrifice and risk all of their well-being like this? So in chapter 11, we see the plan to repopulate this city. All right, so just if you're using the outline or if you grabbed one on the way in, there were four points. We're only going to do the first two this morning. So we're going to stop at chapter 12, verse 26. So actually, we need a new title. I'm sure you all really care about this. But anyway, take care how you build is the theme of this morning as opposed to the previous title because it leaned too much on the second half, but we'll hit that next week. So um, here we go. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Point number one. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. Okay, agricultural purposes. You don't grow all the crops inside the city. They're grown all around. So anyway, it's a good thing even to leave these people by and large in their towns. And the people blessed all the men who were willingly offered to live who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And then in verse 3, it says, these are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns, Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And verse 4, and in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin And then it goes on to say, here's the sons of Judah. And then it goes on to say, here's the sons of Benjamin that lived there. And then it goes on to say, here are the Levites who lived in the city and on and on. It's all about who's living in the city and who's living in the surrounding villages. But let's key in on verses one and two. So the leaders were living in Jerusalem, but by and large, the people were out in the villages. So they cast lots to bring a tithe of the people into the city, one out of 10. And then verse two, and the people blessed all the people who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So what's this lot thing? So it's kind of like drawing straws, <laughs> okay? So Proverbs sixteen thirty three says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So this is wisdom on Nehemiah's part, if this was his idea, if you got drawn to move, it's ultimately Yahweh's decision. It's God's decision, not Nehemiah twisting arms and coercing people. So there is some question here, like are these people chosen by lot and then in addition, there was this group that was willing to go or did everybody agree to the plan and when their straw got drawn, they willingly went in. It's a little ambiguous. We don't really know. But either way, it was commendable that these people went willingly. Because again, it was, sac- it was a sacrifice to do so, right? If they went willingly, what they were doing is they were prioritizing God's plan over their personal plans, over their own desires for kind of their comfortable life that they'd already set up. They were seeking first the kingdom of God. That's what it means, that they willingly went and lived in the city so it was a sacrifice it meant less land and if they owned land outside the city they would have to sell it or something because they don't they're not going to be able to cultivate it in the same way they would have to start over in terms of housing it was also a risk if an army attacked they'd come to the city and there's nowhere to run if you're out in the villages you can kind of take off and hide until the threat passes the wall is a protection but it also hems you in If the threat comes. But the building of the city was more strategic and needful for the sake of the kingdom. God's program was their desire over their personal desires, their personal plans or comfort. It was Matthew 6, 9, and 10 getting worked out hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven it was Matthew six thirty three getting worked out in an old testament version seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well so they bore this sacrifice believing in the mission of God the will of God the plan of God for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven And those priorities trump their own safety and prosperity and comfort. It's an example for us. So James Hamilton in his commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah writes this, these are the people we should look at and bless. You see how they do that in verse two? The people blessed these volunteers, those folks that willingly volunteered. These are the people we should look at and bless. They're laying down their lives. They're being Christ-like. Who would we bless if we looked around to speak well of an analogous group of people today who are willingly offering to do what is less advantageous for themselves in order to pursue God's kingdom. Well, who comes to mind? Probably what he mentions here. Certainly missionaries who go to difficult places, people who do things that most of us will not ever do or don't wanna do, but not just them. He goes on and he writes, Jesus is the supreme example of one who left all that was advantageous to himself and went to a place that was not pleasant for him. He got crucified. To follow Jesus is to follow him in laying down our lives for the benefit of others as he did for us. We want to embrace Christlikeness, recognize Christlikeness, and celebrate Christlikeness. So this is... This is something that's not just in Nehemiah. It's all through the scriptures. So Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says to them in chapter two, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I'll go, willingly. I'll make the sacrifice. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, like held onto and used for his own advantage. No, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So participation for them in the city of God, the building up of the city of God, building up of the people of God, the kingdom of God, was setting aside their desires, their comfortable life, and doing what was needed, what was most important for the sake of God's purposes. And that's very relevant for us, very applicable to us. Participation, like the city of God is not a place in our day and age. It's the people of God. He's our king. We are willingly his subjects. We want his kingdom to come. We want to bow the knee to King Jesus. So participation in the city of God, the kingdom of God, is oftentimes setting aside our comfort and desires and doing what is needful. More important for the sake of God's purposes. Again, it's the heart of Jesus, remember? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Or think about Luke 22, Jesus in the garden. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Aren't you glad that was Jesus' heart toward us, his willingness for our sake? So when we see his heart, trust his heart, know all that he has done for us by his grace, by faith, by his grace, he puts that same kind of heart in his people and grows that kind of heart in us so that we say, your will be done on earth and in my life and through my life as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come through me. So no wonder that later in Philippians 2, Paul writes and he blesses some guys that have lived this way. He honors them just like Nehemiah 11.2. In two twenty-five to thirty, he writes of a guy named Epaphroditus. He says, "I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill." Just do you see the servant-heartedness in that? He's not distressed because he was sick. He's distressed because you heard he was ill and you'd be concerned about him. So he's concerned that you're concerned. Indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him but also on me because Paul loved him so much, so thankful for him. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, I am the more eager to send him therefore back to you that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men and women. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Epaphroditus probably worked a regular job. But when Paul was in prison and he needed some help, he needed some money, some, some resources, and Philippi was miles and miles and miles and miles away. And the Philippians said, we want, we want to help Paul out. What was lacking was, who's going to get it from here to there? And he took a risk to do that. So I'll go. <laughs> so he selflessly took that gift to Paul. And in the process, got sick somehow and risked his life. And Paul honors that kind of selfless sacrifice it's the heart of Christ and it's the heart of Christ's followers at least it should be and so it may be humbling it may seem like a you know down the ladder move but it's what it looks like to follow Jesus and all such moves should be honored and admired and emulated So have you ever heard of the famous lines from David Livingston? He was a pioneering missionary in Africa. He wrote this. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. So he was a pioneer because he had fixed his eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of his faith. And he ran the race that was set before him, even when the natural tendency would be to run the other way from risk and hardness. So, you know, are we going to go be pioneering missionaries in some, you know, off the beaten path place in Africa? Probably not, although maybe some of us will. But what kind of character are we cultivating on a daily basis in this regard? Because it really does come down to the, the daily choices. Are we trying to protect ourselves from need or are we moving toward it? Are we trying to maximize comfort or are we willing, willing to give it up to bring comfort to other people? Like why did David Livingston say, I never made a sacrifice? Is this because he would just like made out a different material, <laughs> you know? He was just like a super Christian and the rest of us are kind of like JV. Well, maybe in some ways, okay? But don't you also think that it was the result of lots of small decisions not to be a slave to selfishness and comfort? We are all always either strengthening our selfish impulses or we are weakening them and strengthening, on the other hand, our dependence on God and our love and servant heart and sacrifice toward others. So I've read recently in a number of places how habits are what we need rather than resolutions. Habits are more important than resolutions. I think I understand the point. Um, Most people, when they're talking about resolutions are trying to establish some habits so I don't know if you need to pit them against each other but whatever so Nehemiah 11 1 to 2 is an example Philippians 2 is an example calling us to follow Jesus on this humble willing self-sacrificial road seeking first God's kingdom giving ourselves in humble selfless love just like Jesus did just like Paphroditus and also to admire these traits and commend them and bless them where we see them in other people, encouraging them. So we should bless those who live this out. Like here's application for today, ready? Look around, look through the directory, think through the people who are doing this in your life, in this body, and maybe are extended Bethel family that's scattered around the world doing this kind of stuff and communicate your encouragement to them. Bless them for the willing sacrifices they have and are making. We should bless and honor people who live this out. I could start multiplying examples, but i I I don't want to embarrass anybody, and I want to encourage us all to take this up and think through, who's living this out? Who helps me see what this looks like on a daily basis? And then encourage them with that. So don't you, we need to create a cult, like a a countercultural community that admires this kind of life and trains and follows generations that, you know, will come behind showing them that this is the blessed and blessing worthy life that that here in this place we look up to those humble servants who willingly give of themselves in love to others you know the world's going to have its values but we have a completely countercultural set of values and we're going the world will honor those who make the most money you know Climb the ladder the highest, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. this is a Jesus community, and we 're going to honor the things that reflect the character and the will of Christ and and we want to train our community in those values. so do you see how blessing those people is part of creating a culture that says that's what's really valuable here. It's like Jesus when the disciples were thinking like the world when they wanted to be on his right and his left hand. You know, he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be like the leader of the world. Hey, I want to be at your right hand. I want to be in your cabinet when you come into power. And Jesus says, Gentiles, they lord it over. You know, they use their power to accomplish their own prideful, selfish purposes, it shall not be that way among you. Whoever wants to lead must be a servant. Whoever wishes to be great must be a servant. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're going to follow me, it's humble self-sacrifice and service, not lording it over other people for your own selfish ends. So Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 10, beginning of chapter 11. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but the advantage of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. All right, that's point number one. Now, as we turn to chapter 12, the list of names stretches back to those who came up out of Babylon with Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Okay, so that kind of reaches back into the book of Ezra and its history. You know, here's how this return happened and the kingdom of, or the the, um, city of Jerusalem was being rebuilt. So point number two, building on the work of others. Look at 12.1. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua. Okay, so that was back in 538 B.C. when Cyrus made that decree. It's 100 years before Nehemiah. A little bit further down. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. He was the high priest at the time. Verse 10, look down at verse 10. And Jeshua was the father of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, the father of Eliashib. Eliashib, the father of Joidah, Joiah the father of Jonathan. Jonathan, the father of Jedua. And in the days of Jehoiakim, high priest who succeeded, Joshua, were priests, heads of fathers' houses, and on and on. So this list of names stretches from 538 BC to 400 BC, from Zerubbabel and Jeshua to Jedua. <laughs> so what, what in the world is the point here? Well, this section is focusing on the continuity of the priesthood and the temple service throughout all those generations. And, and actually, it reaches even further back from before the exile. Under King David, look down at verse 24 the chiefs of the Levites, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Jeshua the son of Kadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to give praise and to, to praise and give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. And you can go on to verses 45 and 46 and see that it reaches back to David and Solomon. So, building on the work of of other people can be a bad thing, right? Kind of be a touchy thing. Like, don't you come in here and mess up my work. (laughs) You do your work, I'll do mine. So whether it's in the kitchen or in your workshop or at the office or whatever, but building on the work of other people can also be a needed and beautiful thing. I mean, think of, you know, an author who dies and the family publishes like some really awesome stuff Posthumously after they died. The point here is that the story continues. This generation in question is in continuity with the past. The, the priests at this time in Israel's history is in continuity with the past. Just as God was with them and they served God and his purposes in their generation, these folks are a part of fulfilling his will in their generation. God's kingdom is coming. Until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, it it certainly doesn't all happen at once. We all have a part to play. Each generation has a part to play. And in God's story, it's all building. One generation on the next. So we have a part to play. And our part, no matter how small or insignificant it may seem, plays into God's grand purposes, the story that he is writing. So again, James Hamilton writes this in his commentary. The first wave of returnees is hereby linked to the rebuilders at the time of Nehemiah. These two groups, the returnees and the rebuilders, are brought together in Nehemiah 12:26 as though they are one united effort to renew the worship of God in Jerusalem because they are they're all part of one effort God's work through history to create a people who will worship him in spirit and in truth so king da- David established that worship look at verses 24 and 26, or 24 to 26 of chapter 12. It says, the chiefs of the Levites, you know, according to the commandment of David, the man of God, and then there's more names. These were in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, and in the days of Nehemiah. So you see how the previous generations are brought together with the present generation. So King David established this. Zerubbabel and Yeshua did the vital work in their generation. Nehemiah and Ezra are doing the vital work in their generation. And not just the leaders, but everyone. All these names that you and I know nothing about these people, t- names we're tempted to just blow right by. The point is that each and every person mattered. Just like your part and my part matters. No matter how small it may be, we're building on the work of Christ and on the work of the apostles and on the work of the early church. So there's a, there's a uh, church planting network called Acts 29. That's pretty fitting. Acts 1 to 28 is the establishment of the early church and we're living in Acts 29. In our generation, we have work to do for the kingdom of God to come. So as Jesus fulfills his promise, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. We are working. We have work to do. We're building on the work of others, right? I mean, even this church has been established since in the 50s. We're standing on the shoulders of other people who were faithful. And listen, we need to do our part in our generation because how we do it will impact future generations as well. And listen, if the Great Commission is going to be completed, we sung that song, you know, Mark mentioned the verses at the end of Matthew 28, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. If the Great Commission is going to get completed, you need people like Mark Strobert working on Bible programs so that the Bible can be translated into every known tongue so that everybody can hear the good news. Small part, zeros and ones, but it has a massive impact in what God is doing in the world now and in the future. Think of how Mark's work is going to serve future people groups. And They're never going to know his name because he was working on the back end on these programs and such. So same thing with us. You and I have no idea the impact that we can have, that we will have. I think of this couple um, from our church in Chicago that we came from 12 years ago. The husband is an electrician. Man of few words, like, just, he. this guy's a dude. He's just like a man's man, hardworking. Quite. Mom was a stay-at-home mom, godly couple. They had four kids, two girls, two boys. Normal ups and downs, struggles, waywardness. All four kids now are walking with Jesus. The one son, his wife, is going to be our retreat speaker. And sadly, they just lost their five-year-old daughter Um, she died a few weeks ago so you can be praying for Don and Sarah Jones Um, but here's this electrician and his wife and who knows the impact of their faithfulness and their prayers over decades to invest in their children and to see I mean I have a little bit of a window into how God's using their kids and how their kids are raising their kids, and kind of the trickle-down impact of their faithfulness, which it could seem small. You don't know the name Don and Joan Jones. You don't know those names. And other people don't know our names, but what's our work in our generation to be faithful? Investing in kids, sowing the word, loving and praying. Or what about those who serve faithfully, kind of behind the scenes, week by week, sacrificially in the kids' ministry, and don't view it as just babysitting. They're praying for those kids, they're investing, they're loving them in creative ways. Who knows the impact of that? Certainly, you can go by weeks and months and even years and think, is this making any impact? We have no idea the eternal impact that this kind of investment is making. And so we're all in this together. We have continuity with the past generations. We need to embrace our calling in the present, in our generation. Because like it or not, we are serving future generations. We're either serving them well or serving them poorly. Listen, actually all of us are building something with our lives. It's just a matter of whether we're building on the rock or we're building on sand. And at the end, if it's gonna just get washed away or if it's going to stand firm and be fruitful for eternity. So I'm actually gonna draw things to a close here by drawing our attention to just a couple New Testament passages here. So turn to 1 Corinthians 3. So primary application here is to ministers of the gospel but all of us are called to be faithful to build the kingdom so it has application to all of us as well so Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he says according to the grace of God this is 1 Corinthians 3.10 according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it because of Paul's ministry the church existed in Corinth And someone else is building upon it. So after he left, other people are leading and, you know, um, building up that church. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or on the other hand, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be, be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. At the end our work will be shown for what it is. Whether we were building on the rock or building on sand. Um, whether it withstands the fire or whether it's burned up and more like dross. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And then look at this, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God tem- God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So Nehemiah was and Ezra, they were involved in rebuilding the physical wall, and the city but ultimately the city of God and even the temple of God is not a place but a group of people because he dwells with us by his spirit and so the building project in the New Testament and beyond is the people of God and we all have a part to play, the work continues. We are building on the work of those behind us and those that go, that come behind us will be building on the work that we do So we've got a baton and we need to run well and we need to pass it on to others and not drop it. So this text is a call to carry on with the work, to not lose our zeal or our focus, to not drift and put God and his purposes on the margins or to not try to do God's work in a a worldly way, but God's work in God's way with that humble servant-hearted willingness so building on the foundation, serving and equipping future generations, and doing so in a way that's willing and servant-hearted and sacrificial. So we dare not drift, brothers and sisters, even though you know everything's nuts in the world around us, let's run the race that's set before us. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, even these folks that were faithful in Nehemiah 11 and 12, Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed." So let's run the race that's set before us, cheered on by those who've gone before. We're building on what they've already built. And with an eye to those ahead that we need to pass the baton to. And we will do this well. We will do this work well as we follow the humble, servant-hearted example of our Lord Jesus walking in his footsteps. So we're gonna pray, and then we're gonna close with a song that's fitting, Let Your Kingdom Come. So listen to the words, read the words, ponder what you're singing because this song is a prayer and it's a fitting prayer on the heels of this passage and what we've considered here this morning. Is this your prayer, the cry of your heart, that God's cause would engage our hearts and that we would long for his kingdom to come and his will to be done and for him to use us to do it. Well, God, I pray that you would help us to see that the only way to build our lives and this church and your kingdom on the rock is to build on the foundation that's already been laid, Jesus Christ and him crucified and to build in the way that he built through willing self-sacrifice and suffering. And I pray that we would follow in his footsteps, that you would give us grace and willingness, that you would help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and want to do so, that you would own our desires and our values and that you would shape them and that you would shape our church, that we would Value and commend and bless the right things and pass the baton well. Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed and your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.